everybody, welcome to a brand new interview. I'm Kai Savas and welcome to Film Music Media. Uh, I'm sitting with the amazing James Allen Robertson. Uh, James, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. It's so great to see you. Thanks for having me, Kai. Yeah, of course. So um, I, I want to jump in and, and just talk, uh, well, first, actually, before we jump into your background, I've been asking composers this question and I, I love the different varied responses I get. Um, so I'm, I, this question may seem simple, but uh, I think it has a lot of different connotations to people. Um, so I'm curious as a person, as a storyteller, as a musician, as an artist, what does uh, music mean to you and whatever you, sense you make of that? Oh man, music is metaphor to me. Music is music is um, emotional subtitles, at least in film, I feel like that. It's someone can say a phrase, a propositional phrase, like I'm doing all right. And the music can tell you whether or not they're lying or not, whether oh, or not they're yeah. telling the truth. And so I, I feel like music is just this, it almost doesn't exist. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. If you stop it, it disappears. It's not like a film where you pause it and you just, you're left with the photograph. You, you stop music and it disappears. You right. play it too fast. It doesn't make sense. You play it too slow. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's so powerful, but it's almost not there. And it's just perfect metaphor. So that that's kind of how I see music. It's just this, I don't know, like ghostly thing that just tends to permeate everything that we do and feel. Yeah, oh, that's an awesome answer. That's I love that. That's that's amazing. So um, I'll, let's, I want to jump back and I want you to maybe take me back to growing up and, you know, I, those formative years where do you remember, was there like a, a catalyst, like a, like a point in your life where music entered it and started becoming just piquing your interest was there or did it just kind of happen naturally were you just surrounded by it and it kind of gravitated towards it I'm just curious if there was like a aha moment or it just kind of slowly seeped into your life <laughs> literally every one of those things um oh all, yeah so I started playing Suzuki violin when I was a little kid um and my my dad was a uh guitarist classical guitarist and banjo player and he later taught classical guitar but he played banjo and um, and everything. So music was always kind of around and I, you know, I didn't feel this way or that way about it. I, it was just kind of yeah. a thing I did. And I studied um, Suzuki violin playing, you know, pepperoni pizza and all those little things um, from the age of like four up. But I, I got hit with it. I got hit with guitar and I got hit with actually really caring about music kind of for its own sake, maybe around age 12 or so. Um, my, it, there was a small period where my dad was teaching electric guitar and that was when Santana won all those Grammys. And I was like, that was in the culture and it was just, there was all those like good guitar players and bands on the radio back then. And I just said, I want to try this. And there's a guitar down the hall. I can, and that was really when it all kicked in and my dad was cool and like he had all this gear and it kind of slowly migrated into my bedroom and I started <laughs> learning how to use the stuff. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so that that really was when the sort of the bomb went off for me. And then just a year or two later, um, I would have been in high school and um, I played violin in our orchestra and we used to do these like pops concerts and we used to play like John Williams and we used to play Hans and we used to play Braveheart. You know, we would play all these yeah. different things. And, you know, I got to play the, or like James Bond and I got to play the Monty Norman part, you know, so yeah. all of that kind of was, was popping off around that time in my life. And I, all of the pavement had kind of been laid before without me being, 
you know, I was kind of ambivalent about it, but then all of that started popping off and then I went off to Berkeley. And so everything just kind of grew, you know, the seeds were planted early on, but everything just started germinating around then. Yeah. It just started sprouting. When were, when were you like aware that film music or, you know, visual uh, you know, media was kind of the path that you wanted to take because you got into music. Was it always just regular kind of classic music, concert music, uh, bands? I'm curious. When did the uh, kind of films and television kind of enter your life? And you're like, oh, this is a a career that I could possibly pursue. And what you know, what made you gravitate towards that? That's such a great question. I I feel like it, it was all again around that time. My friend yeah. Grant and I, and and like. Um, he and I and our moms used to just go to movies all the time. And I remember we saw Gladiator and like, that was just this religious experience. And, you know, I didn't yeah. know much about film music back then, but it just like the, you know, the Duke and the quiet, you know, um, you know, everything, the voices and the orchestra and the percussion and everything just was like this religious experience. And then like a year or two later, whenever in, in, in high school, um, we started playing that music and I'm like, oh, people like a guy wrote this who, you know, we both know now, but right. like, oh, so <laughs> wrote this, we can play it and we, you can read this and I can read music. And it just was like, oh yeah, that's like a career that somebody is doing in the world. And yeah. that, and then around the time I wanted to sort of do rock guitar too. And I realized that if I went to Berkeley College of Music, I could do both. I was like, I can study rock guitar, but I can also learn to score film. So I'm just, I'm going to do that. That was, that was sort of when I decided when I, when I made the connection between, oh, there's like a, just a guy out in the world who wrote this amazing music that just like melted my face in Gladiator. So right. that, that was how it went. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I remember Gladiator. I remember seeing that opening weekend and that's, oh, I think year 2000. Yeah. So yeah, I was, uh, yeah. you know, you're in your, what was it? I was like 13. So something like that. It was just like, yeah crazy you know that and it just uh hits you and you know being a teenager and seeing a, a, an intense film like that with a score like that where Hans was just really kind of changing the game a bit for historical epics and it was just like yeah that was a big moment I remember that too it felt real it felt yeah. real in a way that you know not that other action movies like that weren't good but it felt just you felt the dust and you yeah. felt the sun and you know it, ah it was it was great yeah, you know. absolutely agree with that. So, take me. Uh, so after college, um, you moved to LA, and I know you started working uh, with Rupert. Uh, what were the, what were those days like uh, when you were just kind of young, kind of finding your your place? And how did you kind of get your foot in the door to start, you know, working as an assistant, and then of course growing into a you know additional composer and, and score engineer and working kind of really a big part of Rupert's team. Yeah, I um it was funny actually before I I wound up at remote control I I was doing a little assistant work for this guy out in the Palisades but he wasn't doing much film work. He had done mm -hmm. film work in the past and arranging work. And I was working with him over there and actually it's funny um the guy who did that job before me was Phil Bouchet who then went oh, on yeah. to work with Jefferson Kelly and we were both Berkeley guys around the same time. And so then when I, I kind of decided I wanted to make the move over to remote too, Phil, you know, the, the word got out that I had <laughs> done, like Phil, Phil knew me. And, and, and so I got over and I was doing the runner thing, which I'm sure you, you've covered endlessly in, in your, your time in LA of, you know, the, you know, taking the trashes out and making the coffees and doing everything. And it was, it was, you know, it was hard work, but it was like, you got access, you got to be there, you got right. to hear Alan Meyerson talking to Hans in the hallway and, and just how interesting and engaged everyone was. And so I did that 
there. I was a runner for 11 months, but I was doing every kind of odd job I could do on the side. So I was helping out um, Haytor printing on like Smurfs. And I was doing some guitar work for Deborah Lurie on, on for the money and all these different things. She wasn't even a remote, but it was just all these things I yeah. could kind of pull together. You know, like I think June and July, I don't think I had like a day off that, that <laughs> year in like 2011. And then at the end of that year, I guess word got got to Rupert um um when his assistant was leaving that I was someone worth talking to and you know by the by December of 2011 I had I'd gotten that job and I, I just threw myself into it I used to use logic but when I got in I just it was like fully my native language just like nope I'm gonna speak this language now I'm gonna use these key commands I'm gonna use the you know and I just fully just did the immersion program in the Rupert Gregson Williams <laughs> camp for about five years and it was awesome. You know, it was great. So during those uh, those years, were you, how much of, of it is it about just kind of absorbing and learn, like working with a composer like Rupert, who's, you know, working on like these big titles and studio pictures? How much is it uh, of it kind of as a learning process, but also developing and kind of building your own, I guess, identity as a composer? Because is it is it able to do both? Or did you have to wait till you started writing to be able to kind of find your voice as a composer? Or were you able to kind of I guess, build those at the same time, learning the technical side of things and the business side of things, but also the creative side of things. I think, I think it's a little bit like the question, the, the earlier question about how I started music is that yeah. I had, I, I had this idea uh, kind of, of, I had an idea kind of who I was. And then I also had the reality of who I was based on, I grew up in East Tennessee around a lot of like sort of folk, like that wasn't what I, I was ambivalent about that as well, yeah. but I just knew the language of like folk and, you know, country and um, the sort of Wyndham Hill finger style, Chet Atkins, like all this, this kind of stuff was just in, but you know, I, okay, well, that's just the thing. And so I, so that was probably the reality. And then I had the sort of the other things I was interested in, but the, the trouble was sort of when I, before I started working for Rupert, I, I didn't have the deep foundation in like the language of film mm. or like, um, any like really efficient ways of executing things. You know, I didn't have a lot of studio experience. I didn't have a lot of, lot of DAW experience. I had a fair amount. I was, I was at average or above average probably for that age, but you really want to put in all those hours. So I think once I sort of worked with Rupert, I got to observe how he approached a scene and Rupert, Rupert is, you know, he was and is a great friend and mentor. He's not, you, you learn from Rupert by, listening to Rupert and you learn by watching Rupert he's not gonna sit there and pontificate about what yeah. he's doing he's just like well that's what I did that's what it needed and and th and that's fine and you know so I I learned a lot just breaking those things apart and looking at the sessions and then once I feel like I had gotten the technical skills that you alluded to all this other stuff that I had mm. musically what it was able to kind of escape because I couldn't I couldn't execute it maybe before I had those right. skills that kind of makes sense oh yeah that makes sense completely well um yeah so I mean let's jump into uh your approach uh, maybe some uh, gen uh, maybe some general uh, uh topics before we kind of jump into some uh, projects but I'm always curious about I, I know this is going to vary of course project to project so if you want to use maybe spirit or heart of a champion or something as an example but I'm curious like 
where does the first note typically come from for you? Where do you love love to start? Like if, if you're on a project early enough, do you love to actually read the script? Uh, most of the time you're going to be at the, you know, towards the end of the project coming in with everything. Do you like to see that first cut, uh, the first lock picture? Uh, do you like to listen to the temp, not listen to the temp? I'm curious, like, where do you go to to find that first idea to just start the process? Yeah, um, well, it's it's great, man. When I can get the script, it's it's awesome. I did a I did a short film for um, a young or a young director, I guess, beginning of last year. Yeah, and I got the script early enough to where I could write some suites, and they played them on set. They actually oh, wow. played them on set to get people, which is super rare. I yeah, mean, it's very rare for a short. You know, it's it they move a little faster or slower. Um, that that's awesome. But yeah, my my first note, I guess. It will it will usually come from the keyboard, and I will usually spend. Even though I'm a guitar player, I'll usually just kind of get a framework, mm. um, and I I often spend kind of a day building a template before I even write anything, just to kind of it's sort of like online shopping a little bit. It's like putting stuff in your cart, and you're ooh that would be nice, you know, and yeah. maybe you don't end up you know clicking order yet, but you're just oh, you know, oh, what if I had like tuned bowls or what if I had, you know, okay, spend kind of an, a day or an afternoon doing that. And then maybe not having any of that, getting on a piano patch or yeah. something, and then just writing some music and then, okay, well, what if that melody or that chord was, and then, you know, that's kind of how it starts. So you get all these colors and then you sketch in black and white. And then, mm. but you've already sort of, and you know, not that you can't add or, add something else that comes along but I like having everything kind of laid out in front of me and that goes if you could see my room right now the guitars are like you can without moving yeah. you can grab things and swing a mic around so it, it has become a fast process but generally the first notes are on the keyboard and then we just start blowing it out and and you know giving it color filling in the lines do you like to uh, have the picture in front of you while you're coming up with like themes and, and and melodies or motifs, or do you like to just find maybe something that speaks to an emotion away from picture and then start playing around with conforming it and seeing if it works with the performance or works with a character or something like that? It's probably better to not have the picture sometimes, like with mm. that the the short the uh, surviving the big one that I did. It was great to just have the words and then they tempt kind of with my stuff and I was, and then I could sort of see what worked and what didn't, yeah, but yeah. I will say I'm very influenced musically by cinematography. I realized that in heart of a champion. Um, I mean, in Rupert, I feel like is too, like he's so, he's so great. I, I don't know if you yeah. would frame it this way, but a lot of the things, like I remember he did some stuff on like Lone Ranger and some, some of the stuff, and he was known for doing comedy around that time when Lone Ranger came out. He he hadn't done Hacksaw Ridge or Wonder Woman or any of those things. And all of the sort of big sweeping cues were like, were him and, you know, a, a handful of them were. And so much of that is the cameras doing this thing. And so that that can you, you'll be writing something and then you'll see the picture and you go, oh, this needs to this needs like to be 100 feet tall. This is, you know, so the picture can really help. But it is nice to start to words start to. Yeah. You know, yeah, because then it's all in your imagination. And when you uh, so, yeah, let's uh, I guess we can just start. I want uh, Maybe let's start with Heart of a Champion, actually, because I, I want to talk about working with director Brad Keller. So you, let's talk about how, you know, you started that project. Um, 
which is a, a beautiful, wonderful family film uh, about a girl who finds a lost horse and, of course, um, bonds with it and, and, and you know, and, and coming overcoming obstacles and stuff like that. Um, so what were like kind of saying what you just all said about kind of getting to that point and now you get to work with uh, your director. What are kind of the first conversations that you have and, and using Heart of a Champion as an example? Like what did you and Brad talk about at first? Like what kind of is just about finding your what are you trying to get from him? I guess, you know, what do you need from him to start uh, your process? Yeah, so that's interesting. So actually, so Brad and I interacted a little bit, but actually Miriam Elkin and the producer was more of my point person. Mm, uh, and okay. so she was maybe more interacting with Brad, but she's the 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 producer conceived of the film and everything. So we we were more of like directing, you know, interfacing one-on-one. -on -one. And she was in Texas and I was in LA, but we spoke all the time. Um so that I got the film and it had already been sort of cut together and temped, but they didn't, they weren't able to use the temp and they wanted to hire a composer and do all that stuff. So I had this, this goes to a question you asked before about whether you listen to the temp or whatever. I watched right. it once with the temp and I had it as like a stem in my mm -hmm. session, but after that I muted it, but I had some ideas for spotting, but I didn't want to hear kind of what they did. And I wanted to go into, into genre um, so yeah, Miriam and I basically just, we checked in every week and I gave her, I, I divided the, I had five weeks to do it. I divided the movie oh, into wow. five and I just said, I'm going to give you music every five weeks and any notes you have on the previous one, I'll deliver with the next one. And so it's like the next one would be the second part plus that. But we did initially just kind of talk about who Charlie was, um, what her situation was, you know, what they were hoping to evoke in the film with her and the sort of the love with her and, and Chango, the horse. And um, I don't know if you know this, horses aren't great actors. Yeah. They, they tend not to be great actors unless they're animated. If they're animated, they're awesome actors. And they have, have experience with that too. <laughs> I do. Yes. And it was, it was interesting because people have asked me like about spirit and heart of a champion. It's like, yeah, they are similar, but they do have some pronounced differences. And that's one of them. So having these like themes, and this is stuff that we talked about too, to 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 give the horse emotion with respect yeah. to Charlie that isn't going to be natural from just kind of maybe a horse standing there you know next to her right that, yeah so so there was so you're kind of giving the horse its performance essentially you're giving the horse acting abilities yeah. Yeah. Okay, if that horse wins an Oscar, I'll be very happy. If this the Oscar <laughs> goes to Pepper, which is the name of the horse, which I <laughs> look in the credits, I was like, oh, Pepper, okay, sure. Um, so that actually was something that I, I wanted to do. And I used, I probably used some of the sort of sounds. There were, there were these kind of spiritual kind of almost like misty rain kind of sounds that I had mm. developed before spirit and then on spirit that I think that that kind of, it's almost this wild, you know, primal religious kind of aura yeah. thing that I tried to, so those were just, those were things that we talked about. And then gradually as the, as the music took shape um that's what ended up happening so i mean yeah it, you, you you capture this kind of beautiful americana vibe and you've been kind of i guess you know developing that across spirit and now here and I mean, you know coming up for where you're you're born you know born and raised in, in in tennessee so i'm sure that's really kind of embedded in you so i'm curious what for heart of a champion what was the the sound palette that you wanted how much like you know 
country were you trying to pull into that? Because I, I noticed a lot of the, you know, you have some awesome stuff that kind of sounds almost like an acoustic group kind of just playing, but then you have more of the cinematic stuff where you bring in more of that traditional narrative arcs and narrative builds and kind of those emotional swells. So I'm curious, what was the instrument instrumentation that you wanted to use? And, and also like, this is a lot I'm throwing at you, but how did you navigate the, the tone as well? Because you have this family film, which, you know, how do you decide how kind of maybe schmaltzy or saccharine you want to be? Do you don't want, want to be too much. You don't want to lay it on too thick and syrupy. You want it to be kind of organic. And I'm curious, was that a difficult to find that balance and make sure that the score really kind of worked? It was a little bit difficult and it, it took shape gradually, but I did have most of the decisions, most of the sonic decisions and most of the um, thematic decisions I had made pretty early yeah. on. And um you know, you mentioned country and Americana and stuff. And I knew that obviously that this was going to have a lot in it, but I didn't think you could just, you know, cock a shotgun and just shoot Americana all, all over the whole thing. Otherwise it's right. going to be very homogenous. It's not going to have the, the Sonics aren't going to have any narrative power if everything is just a, a country band. So like the temp for the first scene, when we see not the first scene, but like when we see Charlie emptying her piggy bank and we see her room and all the horse things, and it's a small montage, the temp was really lovely. It was just a solo banjo kind of doing the swingy thing and, you know, it was nice, but I felt like that was too obvious and it didn't, it didn't dictate a journey for Charlie. And yeah. hopefully this is an answer like three or four of the parts yeah. of your question in, 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 all at once. Um, I made that into almost like a little electronic indie thing. There were like mm. little, you know, these little, little arps and um, a Glock and um, some plucked violas. And it, it was almost like just some little, some little indie thing, you know, like if, yeah. you know, it's like Florence and the Machine Kids, you know, like something <laughs> right. like that. And then that theme gathers um, sort of the Americana steam as she becomes more and more of a cowgirl. But then she's just a kid that moved to the country. She doesn't, yeah. you know, she has heart and the theme reflects that, but the instrumentation and the scope of it grow over time. So that was like a little logical lever I could pull and use in other places. And then, so so then you have that, but then, you know, Clint's a cowboy um, and Chango's a horse. So you have you have these things you can hang on, like one's more wild than this one's, you know, the dad has a different sound, which is kind of these sad electric guitars. And so I knew all of that pretty early on. And then once I started writing the music, the score took shape. And I don't think it, obviously themes repeat themselves, but I feel like it's sonically diverse enough, including yeah. the montages. Some are indie rock, some are country rock. And then as we get to the state finals, it's just full on like country, Toby Keith, whatever. And so then it has it has some color to it in a way that just everything being country fiddle wouldn't deliver, I think. Right. And you produce uh, some songs as well, right? In the in the film? Yes. Yes, that's yeah. that's correct. All, all the songs. Um, so I, I didn't write the lyrics to them, but I I had several friends who I knew could help me out on this because I had five weeks to do the score and the songs. And I knew that I had to kind wow. of work in, in parallel so um, I kind of asked several friends, I had this big alphabetical list of just friends from LA and Berkeley that I, I could call. And I was just like, hey, you know, this is what the scene is, you know, and initially everyone kind of sent things in for the opening. And um, it, it was interesting, and you'll, you'll like this, I think. Um, 
this band Idle Mind, Idle Mind, which is uh, Hannah and Lucas who did the opening song. Yes, I told them about that, and they sent me a few things, and one of them was an eight bit track. It was like this eight bit with like you know eight oh eight claps and stuff. Yeah, and I was like, actually, this this is wrong. It's fully wrong, but it's awesome because it's got this kind of innocence and childlike thing. And so I, I threw an EQ on it, high passed it. And then I just, just played that song with banjos and guitars and, and stuff. And I said, does this inspire you? And they go, Oh yeah. And they sent me when swept and wild. So it was just, I was like, you know, that's different than the temp. And right. so that, and then they they sent me a, a cut of when swept and wild. And then I layered up, my Americana stuff on that. So that's just one example of those. So the production was one, almost my favorite part of this because it was collaborative and it was a way to unify the songs with the score. So right. it all felt of a piece, which is rare. Actually, I feel like it's rare. You don't, you don't usually get to do that. I know. I mean, I think it's, especially in live action, I feel like in animation, you see it more often, maybe like, you know, what Hans or John Powell would do. I know John's very involved in producing the songs. and But like, I think recently, I, I mean, I know Dom did a bullet train. He produced all the songs on that too. That which was, was great. Yeah. Which was awesome because the yeah, result, yeah. It, it feels uh, connective tissue and, and, and needle drops are great. And, and having even original songs are great, but like having uh, that kind of seamlessness between the score and the songs, it just makes all the difference to have that kind of like uh, yeah seamless narrative. And I think that what you did with uh, Heart of Champion is exactly that. So congratulations with that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, Dom's great at that too, and he's got the background for it as well. Yes. <laughs> that, that was that was a fun thing to see this last Christmas. Was just oh yeah, like <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh Violent Night too, and then that was great too. <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So. Uh, looking at back at Heart of a Champion, was there like a particular uh, character or theme that you really just really loved? I'm, you know, that kind of spoke to you maybe more than the rest of it. That kind of you really attached to, or something that was really kind of just creatively rewarding to to write. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I I bopped around in the first sort of pre of that five. You know, I had maybe a, a few days before kind of I knew what the film was about and yeah. I was just kind of writing some themes and I, I bopped around before. Then I just started writing linearly just for the director, which I don't always do. Mm. Um, but I came up with the Charlie theme and I wrote a really, really, really rough sketch of that final cue where um, she's competing. And, you know, at the, at the very, the climax, I sketched out a thing um, and then I just left it alone and, and started working through there. And I think that theme, so it's Charlie's theme, but as it grew and she meets Chango and she learns to ride, there's an extra kind of B section to that that I just called the Charlie and Chango theme. So it's it's weird, like there's a Charlie theme of her, you know, being spunky and doing all this stuff. There's right. a Chango theme, which is kind of this um, primeval, like, you know, finding this horse and just this, presence in their lives but then there's the badass of them together and that wasn't something I had planned initially but it really paid dividends and it just has this kind of sharp 11 thing in there um you'll hear it on the on the Ch Charlie and Chango ride queue it's it's all over yeah. there and that was really rewarding and it, and it pushes all of my little nerdy musical buttons of just intervals that I like and you know, it just, it soars. And I got this uh, fiddle player, Dana B from Nashville, who I met a few weeks sort of prior, weirdly enough, before I started doing this movie, who played fiddle over everything. 
and just brought all that to life. Like just, just that little coat of paint of, of actual Nashville country fiddle. That's awesome that you got to yeah bring somebody from your hometown. You know, yes. Oh, it was great. Yeah, I would I would call her and I'd be like, "Here's what's coming this week," and maybe it's five cues or maybe it's fifteen, but it was a lot <laughs> That's of fun. Awesome. Well, yeah, Heart of Champion. I mean, getting you know a glowing response as well. It's such a wonderful film. It's such a feel good movie for for the entire family. And um, but I yeah I want to I know we jumped to that. I, I kind of want to rewind back now and talk about. Um, Spirit Riding Free, which uh, I really loved your score for for that series, uh, which is the DreamWorks animation series based on the uh, on the film, of course, that uh, Hans did. Um, so I'm, I'm, if we take you know, take a step back and maybe knowing what you all, you all what you did for Heart of a Champion is a completely different realm. So let's maybe compare and contrast. How was uh, working on an animated series different than a you know live action feature film? And take us maybe through the steps of. I guess, finding the sound of the show and how long do you think it took for you to kind of, I guess, to find the heart of it over the course of the first season? Yeah, that that was definitely the period, you know, was was the early, early bit. I always, I hope I came up with this because I think it's clever. I always used to say um, movies are summer camp, movies are summer camp and television is boot camp. Yeah. <laughs> and and not that, you know, one is easier, one's harder, but with the film, you hang out on it for a long time and you're you're throwing things and you're sculpting and you're smoothing and you have this one thing. But TV is go, 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 go. You know, so it was like 22 minutes of an episode every two weeks while you're fixing, you're, you're printing and doing final notes on one and you're starting another. And so everything is kind of bricking over. Yeah. Um, and so it gets easier as you do it, but it it's relentless. And so putting in the time and effort at the beginning, I actually, a few people know this. I um, it, When I stopped working for Rupert and I went to do Spirit, I put my stuff in storage and I lived in the studio for like four and a half months. And I was just right, you know, and thankfully there's like a shower at the studio, but I was like just writing, 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 coming up with themes, rewriting, doing all this stuff. Uh, what's Lucky's theme? What's Snip's theme? Does Abigail need a theme? Maricela needs a theme. Um, you know, Javier needs a theme, all these things, how are they going to work together? The mom who's no longer alive needs a theme and it's going to be different when we see her in flashback then. Okay. So all of this stuff and it's a Western and it's animated, um, which I really couldn't have done. I don't think without having worked for Rupert and having done, you know, a bit of animation with him and learning the language. Like I was just primed for that yeah coming coming out of Rupert just hitting the ground running and then so after maybe the first 12 episodes 15 episodes I was like all right I can I know the logic of this show even though many more themes because you'll have a character that you've never met and they're here for six episodes which is like a movie or two you know you you know it's a lot of material especially in animation but I knew the logic of the show and that made it a lot more sort of, okay. Yeah, you know, like the bandwidth now is on the create, you know, figuring the scenes out and telling the story rather than what is this show I've never seen before. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I, I work in, I work at Cartoon Network Studios, so we work in animation, but we do right. typically 11 minutes. So working on 22 minutes, I'm curious, when did you start getting the episode did you get animatics did you get the lock picture to start writing to when, when was the process when you started writing on an episode and i guess how long did each episode you said it was every two weeks you had to do uh an episode is that every two original yeah a first pass every 20 uh, yeah every two weeks and then 
sort of other ones as as it went on and things one's finishing up one's starting mm -hmm. and one's in the middle um yeah the 22 minutes is is great actually uh, i mean it's a lot of work but you get enough time to kind of develop yeah. something you have more room um, to yeah more space to stretch out than the and an 11 yes, minute like I, traditional like tv <laughs> oh for sure although i do love the 11 minute thing um yeah. my friend uh mike barnett and i were doing this project years ago actually i haven't it hasn't come out because of covid and it was like an 11 minute thing um, yeah and that was a lot of fun it was just wacky and you know you just cram yeah. so much in it there, there's something, especially with Spirit, too, where the initial brief was like to do it a lot more kind of cinematic, like Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. They wanted it yeah. to kind of not to have that path. They wanted it to have more Americana rather than the sense. But they they wanted it to feel scope, you know, these beautiful landscapes of the West and horses running at sunset and stuff. Yeah. Um, so approaching it like a like a movie really helped. Um but uh, and actually there were there were these I think it were five episodes the end of the fourth season into the fifth season where Lucky meets her grandparents and then runs off and join her grandparents have a circus and they run off and then she comes back and there are five episodes and so like I I would always call that to myself spirit the movie because it's five 22 minute episodes so that's yeah. like a movie. And so I treated it that way. And I'm like, okay, well, Milagro's got a theme that we've never heard before. The grandparents have a theme. Like we have all of this new stuff. And I just treated those like a movie. But you were asking about process and about when I got it. Yeah. I, they were really good. Everything was locked, but mm -hmm. I would generally only get two. Th I would get sort of a rough CGI kind of, you know, not rail or not, you know, but like not fully done, but all the action was locked. Okay. And I could write to that, but it was just kind of rough color and rough graphics. And then by the like second pass, I would get the final. So like I would be okay. working with something that wasn't quite fleshed out. And sometimes, sometimes I'd have to readjust, like there'd be some action scene and I it wouldn't be quite as smooth, but all of the cuts and all the beats and all the dialogue were all the same, which is a blessing when you're working that fast. There were, yeah. there were rarely conforms which is, you know, as anyone knows, the bane of a composer's existence. Usually. Right. Yeah. Conforming. I love the music, but the scene is completely different now. It's like, okay, well, you don't get the music, <laughs> you know, something else. We shaved five frames off of every five cuts and now you got to make everything. Yeah. But we love the music. Don't change anything. Well, what? <laughs> like, yeah. What was, uh for Spirit, what was the most, I guess, I mean, what was the most challenging aspect of it? Working on a series for that long across many seasons, was it difficult to, uh, did you try to keep the, the the feel? I mean, you talked about just how you were trying to create a movie within the show. How did the the music evolve across the, the, the span of the series? Or did you try to keep a, you know, make it familiar throughout the, the whole run? Or did you try to change it up from season to season? Was there any challenges that popped up that you didn't expect or... Yeah, good question. Um, I did try to change it up. I think sometimes there were there were some episodes that were just like this is just a little comedy episode. Yeah, you know we're not because there are, there were sort of some sub B you know things that carried across over the season, not a ton. And right. then there were the one off episodes and just trying to keep the um, the comedy, which actually was kind of why I got hired for this there was a different composer on spirit at the very 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 beginning mm. and uh he didn't stick around and part of i i was told part of the reason was like they wanted someone with a, a deeper comedy background which thankfully i had working with all those sandler films with rupert yeah. um which was very helpful um but just keeping the language of the comedy fresh because it can be easy to just have like boop, boop, boops and, and just like 
just to to not fall into a pattern with that sometimes took a little bit of scratching and just trying, you know what what if, what if it's a different instrument or what if this time it's like a harmonica or what something that was a bit of a challenge to because you have so many little mickey mouse comedic moments just yeah. making them not feel like oh my god we've done, we've heard this so many times yeah maybe that was just for me that maybe no one else cares <laughs> no that's awesome I, you know spirit was a fantastic series and heart of champion is a, a wonderful you know a wonderful little film there with a great story um and uh so yeah we've covered a lot uh, but before we uh wrap up i kind of just want to maybe talk you know you know you've been working in this industry for a while now um you know you're on you're closer you were we're on around the same age we've, we've kind of seen the most change i think than any generation you know with technology with mergers with all this stuff everything the ground is shifting around us so i'm curious what's your take on the state of the industry right now do you uh what are some maybe some good things you're seeing what are some things that maybe concern you but maybe especially within the, the soundtrack and composing world is there anything that um and they, how have you been i guess adapting with everything with all the changes that are happening around us <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting. I feel like you and I could have a whole other podcast about this, about yeah. <laughs> you know, the changes that we've just lived through and the changes that we are likely going to go through in the next six to 12 months, you know, whether or not there's a writer strike, whether or not um, yeah. these streamers are going to pull back their content because they've maybe overproduced. I mean, there's a lot of conversations about that. But the last, I don't know, eight or 10 years, I feel like have been really good in the sense that there's a lot more content like mm -hmm. when I came out to LA I feel like that was when I first subscribed to Netflix as like a streamer yeah yeah back in our days it was like you'd get a DVD and a little envelope and you know all <laughs> these things and and then and then a little while after that they started making original content and now everyone's doing it and there's so much more content and that they want composers for so lots of my friends you know are just doing so great in those things like Tangeline Bolton's one of my greatest friends oh, and she's just she's it over fantastic. Netflix. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, and I love that. I mean, she would find something wherever she was going, but I just love that there's enough content to wear and like Tori Letzler and all these, all these different people, um, Daniel Rojas, everyone is just like, just, just killing it with all these new interesting shows. And, and, you know, I selfishly want those to keep coming. Cause I want me and all my friends to, to do this kind of work. Yeah, I understand the necessity of maybe scaling back on some of that from the business standpoint, but um, that's a change that we've seen, and I'm curious if that's going to continue. Um, but yeah, I've I've really liked I've really liked that. I mean, I know that's only one small facet of all the different um, changes we've been dealing with, because I know there's also the buyouts and things that people want to do, and that's not great. And I haven't been subject to that yet, but I know people want to you know buy out royalties and. I'm a big advocate of just, you know, when you do this kind of stuff, like you're a writer and you're creating intellectual property, you want to maintain that because you don't know when the next gig's going to be. Yeah. You want to do your best on it. And if you're like, well, I've, I just have to get this out or I have to take on 15 things or I'm not going to be able to eat. You know, if you get the royalties, it all comes out in the wash. But if you're, if you're always just going from gig to gig and the only money you make is, just the fee which is also getting smaller and smaller it really Absolutely. squeezes everybody and i don't think you get the best so i mean that's that's another aspect that um i feel like is maybe creeping in and i'm i'm not excited um about that but i don't know maybe um maybe you know ascap or you know various organizations will get 
leverage and try to, you know, fend that off a little bit. Yeah, it's been, I know it's been tough for, I mean, yeah, there's a lot more content, but of course, studios, uh, you know, have this, it's a double, you know, you have all this content now, but now you have to actually maintain the artists who are making this content for you. And now studios don't want to, you know, put up their fair share, I think, from my perspective. And that's why the royalties thing, I think that, you know, streaming royalties are just such a, a hot topic thing because it, yeah it, they are almost nothing and it becomes harder and harder to make a living doing this where people feel like oh you yeah this is what you love so just suffer for your art type stuff but it's like yeah you know, that's the do it for exposure know, like the band you know the like yeah the exposure wedding. Shit, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> and that's the thing too everyone's a contractor now and not just i don't know yeah. if people out you know who aren't in the industry know this but like you know um ari who created spirit I mean, she's a contractor for Dream. Like DreamWorks has this yeah. core, or Netflix, or whatever. They have the sort of the deep state core of how they make things. But you know, they'll bring in Guillermo del Toro, or they'll in and their contractors, such and composers are and stuff. So, I mean, that model has sort of been for a while, but I feel like it's so much more now. It's almost like the Uber model of yeah, of the Uberfication of of sort of the post you know, and production scene. And um, it's a little weird. I don't, there are aspects of it I like, but um, if if it, if you're interacting with a studio that way, they feel like maybe they have less responsibility towards you. Yeah. And they don't have to pay your health insurance. They have to, you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no it's benefits. Your yeah. You're yeah. cheaper for them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's an exciting time. It really is. Um, and it's so different than, you know, like the stories Rupert used to tell me and stuff. So uh, it, it's exciting to sort of be a part of it, to be a part of it kind of with you, because uh, we're all, yeah, it'll be I mean, to see what the next, you know, five years holds. But um, yeah, it's it's challenging as well. Yeah, it's been, yeah, it's been unique because you, it's no longer, it's no longer a world where it's like, oh yeah, I do like three big movies and now I'm set for life. It's like, no, I got to do like 30, like small projects just to kind of make up, you know, what, what, you know, the, the last generation did. And you know, when I moved out in 2011 and just, yeah, I remember when I started working at Disney, they just made the deal with Netflix and I was working in home entertainment and they were creating the art for Netflix. There was no Disney plus Disney movies anywhere. didn't even exist. There was no other streaming service and all the studios were feeding into Netflix and that one little funnel of putting stuff in. And it's just amazing how quickly everything changed. Now everybody is separated and the walls are up and everyone has their own streaming service. So it's, uh, and now we're, and now we're pulling back and yeah, everyone's pulling back. It was, it's been, it's like, boom. And now, Oh wait, let's uh, pull the brakes. You know, it is pretty interesting. <laughs> One of my best friends, wives um, works um, like in marketing for a big streamer. And mm. we always get into this, like, I, I have this soapbox that I won't get into here, but just about <laughs> like, you know, like everyone has atomized. And I feel like at some point there's a, there's a billion dollars out there waiting for someone who can figure out to make the Spotify, how to make the Spotify of television. Like, yeah. because if I want to listen to Bob Dylan, I don't have to know what record company he's on. I don't have to know, Oh, it's Led Zeppelin. Oh, we'll have to get the, um, a, you know, the, um, Atlantic records add on. No, I just type in who I want to listen to. And right. I feel like there's a billion dollars out there waiting for someone who can figure out a way to incentivize, studios that that's a good idea and i don't know how to do it that's not the the part of the industry i live in but right. you're right it's like we had netflix and then it yeah i kind of want to go back to that <laughs> or just yeah. one streaming service and all the studios kind of benefited and netflix let netflix deal with the streaming stuff and they pay the royalties 
And then this, I mean, Sony, I think is the one studio that really hasn't, yeah, jumped into a streaming service. They, they, they were like, you know, <laughs> we'll read the the Hollywood Reporter tomorrow, and it'll be like Sony launches Sony <laughs> yeah, Plus, Sony Plus, yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. So, I know everyone wants their own, yeah, but yeah, it was that content ramp, but yeah, who knows, uh, who knows what the future, yeah, future, it's it's always changing, but it's always interesting, and uh, I think it's a, a big part of working in this industry is being able to pivot and change and just go with the flow and. Um, but also voice, you know, it's important for artists to stand up for themselves and, and yeah, have, you mentioned organizations like ASCAP and BMI and the unions and, and it's, uh, yeah. yeah. So it's very, it's a, it's an, and things like that. Yeah. You know, that are helping us out. Yeah, I know you guys don't have a union. So that's the thing. Like composers yeah. are one of the few people in the industry that don't have a union back in them, but the SEL is doing, I mean, you know, I, I love it. Yeah, Ashley does great stuff as, you know, leading that. Um, but, uh, yeah, James, I mean, we covered so much today. Uh, thank you so much for all of your insight and and congratulations on Heart of a Champion and and thank you for sharing your process and taking a look into your world and and it's been it's been tons of fun. Thank you for so much insight. <laughs> Man, I appreciate it. Always great talking to you. <laughs>